0: Hey there, thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. As we've been looking at these uh, women in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ, One of the things I I really want you to get is this, God has elaborately been arranging history so that you could be His friend and so that He would be your friend, so that you would be a child of the Most High God, so that you would come into a right relationship with God. As we have looked over the last few weeks, we've looked at this genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. I have little voice today. He has lots of voice. (laughs) Pray for me today. So as we looked at these, these genealogies it's so interesting because in it are these, these five women who nobody would put in their genealogy in the days of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the genealogy is like a resume, and you pad it. You only put the references who will say you did a good job. You don't put your fire rings, or uh, the people are going to say what a bad job you did. And so the genealogy of Jesus is this unique record where there's prostitutes, there's Gentiles, there's all of these people who shouldn't be there, but they're right there, right at the forefront. And and. What Matthew is doing is he's relating the background of Joseph, who is the legal father of Jesus, relating that background to us to show that Jesus' heritage comes through Abraham, comes through David. We're going to turn our attention today to Luke's gospel. You see, Luke was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. And he was a historian. And he used what are really modern methods of research. And what he did was he went and he sat down with Mary and he recorded everything that Mary told him about the birth of Jesus. And so what we have in this record is we have Mary's extraordinary story of how it was revealed to her how she would be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see in in both of the stories of matthew and we see in the stories of of luke we see how god used extraordinary women in extraordinary circumstances but there's a there's a radical difference in the story of mary every woman that we've talked about so far when they met god they were in terrible circumstances but coming to faith their lives were transformed in such a way that they are now have incredible fame and glory and, and they did incredible things with their faith. Their lives were made better. They were women of poor reputation who by faith became women of great reputation. But in the case of Mary, you have a teenager. I mean, she's probably 14, 15 years old. She has lived her life according to her family's traditions. She has lived her life by the law of God. She is following what her family wants for her predictable life. She's engaged, which in those days was basically she was legally married. She had not yet consummated the marriage with sexual intercourse. But in every way, she is married to Joseph. And so when God invades Mary's life, it doesn't turn out for the better. As a matter of fact, it destroys her reputation. She becomes known as a woman who either had an affair, who cheated on Joseph, or a woman who was raped by a Roman soldier. But either way, for the rest of her days, she is, she is tarred with this stigma of an illegitimate child. All of those women that I talked about, every one of them had come from bad reputations, but then by faith became women of great reputation. Mary, as a woman of faith, loses her reputation. And instead of her life getting better, it gets harder. As a matter of fact, nothing is worse than a parent having to watch their child die. There's nothing more gut-wrenching than that. And she had to go through all of that. And so what we have today is we have an amazing account Of how God funneled all of your history, all of your salvation history, all of his hopes for you, all of his love for you. He funneled it down to one teenage girl in Nazareth, all depending on her. And so today we're going to read how she responded to that situation. In Luke, we have the record of what Mary reported to the historian Luke. And we're going to read this out loud together. This is um, verse 26. We'll read all the way to the end of this section. Will you read out loud with me the Word of God, let's read together. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said... That I'm going to say to you, you may not want to hear anything else I have to say after this. Many of you have been taught, and it has been communicated to you that Mary can convey grace to you. As a matter of fact, there are many of you who probably prayed a prayer that is based on the greeting that the angel gave to Mary, where he said, Hail Mary, full of grace. Now, The problem with that is that that is not what that greeting means. That greeting means that Mary is a recipient of grace, not a source of grace. Mary has no more grace to give you than you have to give each other. Mary is in need of grace just as much as you are in need of grace. She will be saved by the son that she bears. She will not be a Savior. She will need a Savior. She, she is someone whom God has favored and God has chosen to be His instrument to bear His Son, but she is never a co-redemptoress with Him. There is only one Redeemer and there is only one name by which you may be saved. And if you are praying to Mary, you are praying into a void. Mary cannot answer prayers Mary cannot do anything for you I would I would venture to say she is grieved when you do not pray to her son or pray in the name of her son because she knows what many many religious people do not know and that is she was as much in need of salvation and grace as every one of us in this room and so this story is not a story of someone who sin is sinless. Matter of fact, everything in her history, everything in her family's history, reveals that they were the most dysfunctional family God could have chosen. They are filled with murderers, adulterers. They are filled with Gentiles, Canaanites, Amorites, Moabites, all of these bites. <laughs> bites andites, you know. I mean, there's every kind of reason for them to be rejected. And yet, God is saying, I have orchestrated all of this to come to this one teenage girl and for this amazing thing to happen. And the thing that happens in Mary is for us. It is the gift of Christmas that the angel brings to us. What's in the gift? Well... First and foremost, in verse 32, the angel says this, the one that you will bear, He is the Son of God. Now, you must understand this. This is not the angel saying that this is some lesser God. He's saying that the one that you will bear is God Himself. As a matter of fact, He calls Him the Son of the Most High, which is the highest title that you can give to God. It is a a title of His His omnipotence, His all power. It's the title of His incredible holiness. It's a a title that He is everywhere present and that He knows all things. There's no one, there's nothing higher than God. And the one who will be born in her womb is God Himself. But at the same time, He says... And he will come from this house of Jacob. This is such a a powerful merging of the necessity of our story. We need a holy sacrifice. You have guilt. You have shame. You have secrets in your life. You have things you can say you're sorry for, but it won't change a thing. You need a holy sacrifice, one that is acceptable to God, one that will truly take your sins away. And and if God Himself had not come in the form of Jesus, there would be no sacrifice for you. No lamb can take away your sin. No blood of bulls or goats, no amount of, of, of penitence on your part can ever change the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And the very line from which Jesus came is the line of Jacob. Do you notice he uses the word Jacob? Do you know what Jacob means? Liar, con artist, manipulator. He's saying here, look, I brought Jesus out of the line of this this dysfunctional family full of sinners. Why did I do that? Because I wanted you to know that if you come to Christ, you qualify. It isn't for good people. Christmas isn't for good people. Christmas is for people who know they're bad people. People who know they're guilty. People who know they need forgiveness. People who are tired of secrets. People who are tired of faking it till they make it. Christmas is for people like Jacob. And the, the story the angel tells is that the kingdom of this lord jesus christ when you connect to him is not a here today gone tomorrow kingdom it is an eternal kingdom because the one who is born in bethlehem is from eternity to eternity you're not latching on to a trend you're catching the wave of eternity when you give your life to christ and so mary is told the holy spirit will come upon her she's she has never been with a man, and she doesn't have any idea, how can I have a child? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The shadow of the Most High, the presence of God will overwhelm you. And then he says, this baby is to be called the Holy One. The very Son of God. Do you understand what this is saying? It is saying when He sacrifices for your sin, He is an acceptable sacrifice. See, when you sacrifice for your sin, all your... Doing is just kind of muddying the water because you can't take away your past, you can't take away all the things you've done, you can't make right. I'll give you a simple illustration of this when a parent promises a child something and then doesn't fulfill it, and then the parent comes back and says, I'll make it up to you, I'm still waiting for my dad to make up those promises. I don't think he ever will. How about you? I'm 60 years old. I'm still waiting. Of all the things I was promised that were never made up, you understand, you can't make up what you've broken. You can't undo what you've done. You can't unsay. I mean, how many of us who are married have said things in anger and they go, I didn't mean it. Then why'd you say it? It's in there somewhere. It's some belief about that person that came out in anger. You can't unsay it. You can say, oh, I'm so sorry, but it doesn't unsay it. Are you getting my point right now? In other words, all of us are living kind of superficially forgiven lives. We're living kind of shallow sort of intimacies because we are afraid that somebody would really know us And if they really knew us, how could they love us? And yet here God says, I have sent the Holy One who himself has no secrets, who himself has nothing to hide. Everything he does is righteous. Everything he does is in accordance to the obedience to his Father. And when he dies in your place, he is a perfect sacrifice. All of your sins can be put on him because he is holy and God accepts his sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the receipt that God has accepted the sacrifice. Come on, that's pretty good. I mean, I, I, let me give you a, I'll i give you my favorite illustration of that. I hate shopping at Costco. I, I just hate standing in line there It's too much sensory going on. I hate that place. Okay? But what I hate worse is you have to stand in line to get out of that place. And you have to show them a receipt, right? I'm certain that hell is you're stuck in Costco with no receipt. (laughs) You see, but here's the thing. When you show them the receipt, you are saying it's paid for they got to let you out because they can't ask you to pay again for what you've already paid for. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a receipt that your sins have been paid for by the Holy One. And when you leave this world, you'll have a receipt. You won't be stuck in Costco for eternity. Are you hearing me today? So... What Jesus, what Jesus is, is He is the Holy One. He is the Lord Himself. He's not just a good religious teacher. He's not a good example only. He is God Himself. When Mary goes to Elizabeth, her cousin, Elizabeth had been barren. She was an older woman, unable to have children, beyond childbearing years. She gets... Pregnant, the Lord gives her fruitfulness in her womb. And John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, is her baby. As soon as Elizabeth sees Mary, she begins to proclaim, You're the mother of the Lord. She's saying, You're the mother of Yahweh. And she begins to talk about Yahweh in the, room, in the womb of her cousin, Mary. And so what we realize is Mary is pregnant with the Lord. He is every bit the Lord as much as the Father is in heaven. And actually what we have here is the beauty of the complexity of God. God is one. There is only one God. But He exists in three persons always. He is always Father. He's always Son. He's always Holy Spirit. And in the conception of Jesus, you see all three. You see the plan of the Father. You see the work of the Holy Spirit and you see the manifestation and the incarnation of God the Son. Our God is not a God you can deduce. He's not a God you can simply kind of intuit. He is a God who has to be revealed to you because He's higher, He's bigger, He's greater than your mind can comprehend. But here's what this story says. He wants you to know Him. The infinite God, the always eternal God has become finite. Do you understand that? The immortal God became mortal. The Holy One became huggable. Think about that. The One who created you was willing to be swaddled. He was, he was omnipotent, but He had no more power than a fetus. The impossible became possible. I love, that. I love that statement. It's the first time it's ever said. With God, nothing is impossible. I cannot tell you how many times in my life that one verse has gotten me through. I remember when I was a young husband, a young father, and we didn't have enough money for the bills or for the rent. And I'd go, oh God, but with you, nothing is impossible. And every month, God would provide. I can tell you the times I thought, there's no way we're going to make it. And yet I would proclaim with you, nothing is impossible. Recently, it became so precious to me when I heard that Lisa had cancer at five o'clock in the morning on a Thursday morning. Immediately I went, but God, with you, nothing is impossible. And he defeated her cancer. There there is no stage in your life where that statement doesn't mean something to you because the infinite has become finite, the immortal has become mortal. The invulnerable God made himself vulnerable so that you could draw near to him. Think about this. If he's invulnerable, you can't get near. If he's unknowable, you can't know him. So what did he do? He made himself known to you. He made himself vulnerable to you, but what Mary begins to understand is not only that this who that's being born uh in her womb being being growing in her womb is, is is this extraordinary God in her body but also there's a there's a there are things that she has to believe about him and about who he is that begin to transform who she is and And so the angel speaks over Mary and he uses a word we use too shallow in such a shallow way or superficially. We say blessed. I am blessed. Half the time when people are saying they're blessed, they're just lying. Because we don't know what it means. You understand? What it means in the scripture is this. Is that you have all the ability, you have all the resources to become fully a human being. You have everything that you need to actually... Fulfill your destiny to become everything you were meant to become. When you're saying, I am blessed, it means that you're no longer, you're no longer just centered on yourself. You see, as long as you're centered on yourself, then everybody else in your life is just there for you. You're a narcissist. You're self-centered. You're an egotist. Because, Because you only keep them in your life if they keep doing what you want them to do. You only keep them in your life as long as they don't annoy, irritate, or stop being what you want them to be. So in reality, you see, without Christ at the center of your life, there is no unconditional love. There's only conditional love, condition, on them doing or being exactly what you want them to do or be. But when Christ comes into the life, for the first time, you know what it is to be loved unconditionally. And instead of trying to produce something you can't produce... Him at the center, you begin to receive and then distribute love out of the basis of being loved. Only if Christ is in that center of your being will you ever truly be fully human. And that's what he's saying. That's what the angel is saying to Mary. Mary, we are now going to give you in the center of your being. A truth that will transform you in such a way that you will reach your fullest destiny. You will know what fullness is. And the the truth of the message of Christmas is that God has always wanted you to reach the fullness of your destiny as well. That he has always wanted you to know what it was to live in blessing, not for blessing. To live in his grace, not for his grace to live in His favor, not for His favor, and to be able to, instead of centering on self, be centered on Jesus, who will take care of yourself. So the question then is, what does this mean for Mary? How does she begin to understand and respond in some ways to this Christmas message or this Christmas gift? And there's really four things that she begins to unpack. But she does so Once she has heard from her cousin and she begins to worship God, she she begins to understand what's going on. She begins to worship God. And what we call that worship is called the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And she unpacks what it means to have Jesus as the gift. First, she, she explains this, or she at least illustrates this, that God has become vulnerable. That the vulnerability of God is the only way to intimacy. Now, any of you that have been close to anybody else, if you ever have drawn close to somebody else, you'll realize that the closer you get to them the more conflict you have with them or maybe that's just me and Lisa I don't know but I I remember in my early 20s we got married at 21 and I I was such an ignorant naive person and so many and arrogant and so many I just thought man I am so smart she's just gonna be so blessed I'm gonna tell her what to do she's gonna do it and life is just gonna be nothing but you know sunny 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 all the time. Although I would tell her what to do, she wouldn't do it. I would say these brilliant truths and she would, she would say the opposite. And you know what the really bad thing is? She was always right. It was horrible to hear, I told you so, I could have told you so, all of those things. And one of the things that I, I realized in the midst of those nine years is that when you are defensive and when you're defending that you're right, or you're defending rights, you never draw close to somebody. You cannot draw close when you're defending. In order to draw close, somebody has to decide that the intimacy, the closeness, is more important than being right. Guess who decided? Our God decided that He wanted to be closer to you than to blame you. He wanted to be closer to you than to punish you. He wanted to be closer to you than to condemn you. While you were still angry with Him, while you were still indifferent towards Him, while you were rebelling against Him, while you were not His friend, He chose to take the blame, become vulnerable because He wanted closeness with you more than he wanted to be right. Oh, please hear this. Two of you heard it. Please hear this. If you've ever had somebody do this for you, it is, it is mind-blowing. Where suddenly you're going, I'm right, I'm, I'm right. And they're going, I'm right, I'm right. And then suddenly you go, I'm right. And they go, okay, you're right. You're going, Wait, 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 wait. wait let's, let's, hold on a minute. Let's fight a little longer. You're kidding me. You know, you're saying I'm right in a way that's what God has done he said I've stepped out of the argument you no longer have to defend your life I took the blame for you I took the punishment for you I more want you near me than I want to be right do you not see the humility of our God that he who could live in invulnerability and who could defend himself because he never does a wrong thing has chosen to take a wrong person and make you his child. And in order to do that, yes, in order to do that, he had to take the blame for you. He stopped the argument so that he could have intimacy with you. Here's what, here's what uh, Tim Keller says. He says, God gave the ultimate expression of letting his defenses down by becoming one of us. Only by becoming vulnerable can the relationship become intimate. God became someone we could hurt, even kill, in order to get us back. This is for you. Do you not see this? You see, really and truly, friends, no other religion has this. It's not in Islam. It's not in the Eastern religions. It's not in Judaism. Matter of fact, most of these things that I'm telling you, they would say God would never do that. But you see, you could never be near a God. Who is invulnerable. And the nearness to God is his heart for you. And so he made himself breakable. He made himself killable. In order that you might have intimacy with him forever. But if you're a Christian. And you know this and you believe this. How can you look at anybody else and not see them the way God sees them? How can you, if you're a husband, say, I'm going to make sure my wife knows I'm right, when God, who is right, didn't make sure you knew he was right? How can you, as a a person of one ethnicity or one color or one tribe or whatever, look and say, I'm going to make sure those people know I'm supreme over them? How can that be when God said, the Most High said, I will make myself most low so I can be near you? It has to, when you believe this, transform the way you look at people. Transform the way you deal with people. You know what? Most of us in New York, you know what? We're we're afraid somebody's going to fool us. We're we're afraid somebody's going to take advantage of us. We're afraid somebody's going to make us look stupid or something. So what, friends? God was willing to be naked, stripped, crucified on a cross because he wanted to be near you. If that doesn't change you, I don't know what will because nobody loves you like that except the Savior. What Mary teaches us also from her her Magnificat, she says he's basically saying to us when you suffer you're never alone. There's comfort in your suffering. There's, there's strength in your suffering Christmas reveals something about God that you have to listen to. You see, when I talk to secularists and they say, you know, there is no God. You you Christians are wrong. There is no God. There's suffering in the world. Therefore, there is no God. So they see an absent God. Or I talk to religious people and they're like, I do all the right things and bad things happen to me. The the idea is if I do good, good will happen to me. If I do bad, bad will happen to me. And and so the idea is God punishes the bad and, and rewards the good kind of a thing. And so there's this punishing God. But Christmas destroys both the absent God and the punishing God because God chose to enter right into our suffering. He didn't come here spiritually. He came here physically. He's right in the middle. He knows everything you're going through. But understand this. Every time you hear that voice that says, you're all alone, nobody cares, nobody knows what you're going through, that's a lie. It comes from the pit of hell. Because there was one who was all alone. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was rejected by the Father because He didn't want you to be rejected. He went through death alone because He wanted you to be able to go through death with Him and come out on the other side. You are never alone. And there's always strength in the midst of your suffering unless you believe the lie. Christmas changes everything. Dorothy Sayers says it this way, He asks nothing from us that He has not gone through Himself. Come on, these are pretty good things here. The other thing is this, passion that God has for justice. You see this in the fact that God's not just concerned about saving souls. He's not just concerned about the spiritual. Or He wouldn't have come in a body. He endured. His lot in life was pain and suffering. He had no place to lay His head. What's He doing? He's saying, I'm redeeming both body and spirit. I'm creating a world in which these physical problems that we go through, they matter. Now, it may be discouraging to you sometimes. You may think, we'll never see the, the real justice. We'll never see equality. We'll never see, you know, we'll never see equity. You may, you may hear those thoughts, but the Bible says the end of the story is this, justice triumphs. We know the end. This is a chapter in the book. The last chapter is justice triumphs. And whatever you're doing For the passion that God has for justice, you are doing God's work. I was—I spent a year in Detroit. Changed my life forever, (laughs) for good though. But I was—I was working. There was a mission I was working in, and it was all drug addicts and, and alcoholics and prostitutes and homeless people, and it was the toughest mission I've ever done. Any of you ever think social work is romantic? It is not romantic. It's smelly, it's hard, it's difficult, it's discouraging. But the man who led that mission never got discouraged. Even though the people would go back to the drugs, they'd go back to alcohol, they'd go back to the streets, all of that stuff. And even when people were really radically saved, they would move on to safer places. So his mission was constantly turning over. I said, how do you do this? He said, the Lord said, the poor you will always have with me and he said every day I have them here and and the Lord brings them to me and I just do what the Lord is asking me to do but you know what was in his heart the end of the story is justice triumphs this is a chapter the end of the story you see we're not just living for today we're not just trying to make this world a better place for today we know eternity is in our hearts come on that, that that ought to rouse you up a little bit look I mean, I'm having a speak on, on Ricola right now. The blessing of Ricola right now. I need a little more help from you today. Come on. This is good. You understand? When you start doing the things and your heart gets passionate for the things that God is passionate about, that's where He anoints you. That's where He empowers you. You can't be the same and know Jesus. And part of this whole series that we've been doing is this God views people differently than the world does he is connecting to what the world actually often considers less than important the whole gospel narrative that we've looked at all of it is women centric please get this in the days of Jesus a woman was not allowed to even testify in court her testimony was considered worthless But what does God do? The incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ is the witness of a teenager. A teenage woman witnesses the virgin birth and only her. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is witnessed by Mary Magdalene who had seven demons cast out by Jesus. Come on. Do you not see and understand? that our god values individuals that the world despises and you may get you may think all i want to do is work with movers and shakers god works with people who look like somebody the world would throw away are you hearing me yes. one writer said it this way if christmas if this is your christmas This is the end of snobbishness. And Luther said it this way Do you know what a stable smells like? I don't like stables. I'm a city boy. They stink. The manure stinks. The straw hay makes me sneeze. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ smelled like manure, He smelled like straw. He smelled like cows or sheep or whatever goats there were. It did not smell good. He would not have been invited to the palace. His parents, Joseph and Mary, though descendants of King David, had no place except a stable to birth Jesus. Can you imagine if you start thinking about that? Our world cannot go to heaven. So heaven came to our world. And when you believe that, and when you start to receive what God receives, what happens is you're blessed, you're transformed, your center becomes connected to fullness so that you can become all that God intends you to be. Well, Mary really teaches us how to open this gift. In other words, here's what's happened in every one of the women we've studied. God has shown us through the lives of these women how to come to faith and how to come by faith then in the fullness of what God has for you. So Mary, Mary has a pattern here that you can adopt in your life. The same faith that Mary exercised when the grace of God was upon her and the fullness that came upon her is the same faith that you can exercise. As a matter of fact, it's the faith you're called to exercise. The first thing that's that striking is her reaction to the angel. Now you may not know this, but, but the angel's greeting to her, where it says hails, he, he didn't come like this Roman soldier scaring the crap out of this little girl. He came to her and he said, shalom, an angel speak. And he's, he's saying peace to you. I've come to give you good news. I'm, I'm wanting to communicate with you. And so immediately as she began to hear that this angel was speaking to her, the Word of God says she started, to, she started to dialogue inside herself. She started furiously, seriously analyzing what is this meaning that this angel has shown up. And she did what most of us would do. You, I mean, if an angel shows up, the first thing you go is, Am I dreaming? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? What did I drink last night? What did I eat? Whatever it is. But the first thing you do is you begin to analyze. She started analyzing. Let me tell you something. You will not go far in the faith if you do not analyze what you believe. She analyzes it. And what she realizes is she has no record for this. She has no framework for this. This is not Greco-Roman which said matter was evil. God is going to become a baby. That's not Greek or Roman. This is not Eastern. Eastern religion says matter is nothing more than an illusion. You can kind of just think yourself out of it. It's not Judaism. Think about Judaism. God becoming man, that's blasphemy. So nothing in this young woman's life at all prepared her for the message that the angel was saying to her. And so what she came to the realization, this is God and he's revealing it to me. C.S. Lewis said it this way, nobody is brilliant enough or crazy enough to make this stuff up. You understand, you see, she's using her mind, and Tim Keller says it this way, faith is more than thinking, but it's never less than thinking. You will not go any further in your faith if you've not thought carefully through what you believe. Deep faith always involves sincere doubting. She sincerely doubts. How do I know that? Because she asked a doubting question. How can this be is a doubt. There's nothing wrong with doubt. As a matter of fact, doubt will propel you into deeper belief. Unbelief is the issue. If you just say, I'm hardening my heart, I'm cynical, I'm skeptical, I will not even deal with this, then you'll go no further. But when you ask questions, God's heart is moved to answer she doubts she wants information but do you not see this picture a fourteen-year-old girl facing down an angel and going tell me how this can be this is an incredible moment of bravery if we weren't in church I'd say it's big something else this is amazing do you not see that I don't know many people who talk back to angels and yet this teenager did maybe because she is a teenager I'm not sure (laughs) So she's humble, but she's brave. Notice, the doubting leads her to community. Faith is never realized in solitude. It's always made real in community when you verbalize it, when you begin to express it. Her faith was made real in relationship. It didn't happen until she was with her cousin, and her cousin defined it for her. And then the last thing is this you cannot have deep faith if you don't have total surrender Mary said I am the Lord's servant do with me whatever you will that's surrender but look how much of a test came to her as a parent this is the first time in history that the child is older than the parents and so as parents they were not allowed to name Jesus the, the name Yeshua Jesus came from the angel and basically what the angel is saying is, you will not manage him, he will manage you. Can you not see that? If you're going to go deep with God, if you're going to have deep faith, if you're going to fully realize your destiny, and only God can get you there, then it has to be you have to surrender control. If you keep control, you're God, and God is, you're asking God to be your personal assistant. And God, who is the Most High, will not be your personal assistant. Are you hearing me? Many of you have given up on prayer, but you've given up because you're not giving up control. Even those who pray Hail Mary, Full of Grace, often they're trying to keep control and getting Mary to give them more power to have more control. That is not spirituality from the scriptures. Spirituality, even Mary's spirituality, was this total surrender. I can't even manage my own child. My child will manage me. Now, some of you are doing it, it's just plain unhealthy. That's not the normal way. It's only because he's the Son of God. He's the Son of God, the Ancient of Days. And she had to give in and say, I'm not the Lord of my life. He is. Will you stand with me? I invite you, I want you to close your eyes with me. I invite you to, I invite you to surrender to the present. Surrender to Jesus like Mary did. And I'm going to give you the words and you can decide if it's your heart or not, if it's your desire, your longing. But I can tell you this, even if you use my words but you mean it, a radical transformation will take place. Mary's life was never the same. We're still studying a teenage girl 2,000 years later because she surrendered. Would you say these words with me? Dear Lord Jesus, Jesus. You are the immortal one, but for me you became mortal. mortal. You're the unbreakable one, but for me you were broken. You You are the holy one, one. but for me you became huggable, huggable. huggable. Vulnerable. vulnerable, because you wanted to be near me. This day, I choose to be near you. I I surrender control of my life. life. The management of my life. life. Lead me, guide me. me. I am your servant. servant. As we close this out, I, I just want to say this to you. You never need a religious prayer. See, you're in a relationship. And a relationship is not through somebody else. A relationship is one-on-one. You with God. And all of history has moved to this moment because God has moved heaven and earth so that you could be his friend and so that you would be his son or his daughter. He never wants you alone in the storm. He never wants you to think that injustice will triumph. He never wants you to believe that you are less, but he wants you to know how much more he loves you than than you even love yourself. Let that happen today. Let that surrender be real. We seal this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Merry Christmas, everyone.